I'm Taylor. I'm Kat. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. Uh, this week's episode was suggested by one of our lovely patrons, uh, Laura, and it's another sort of old-timey case because seems like, you know, you guys like to, to listen to that, and quite honestly, we like to talk about those and, and write them and research them, so, you know. They, they are the most fun, I think. They are, because, like, to... I don't know. A lot of the recent ones are just like, wow, this this is really heavy, and it happened a couple yeah. years ago, and it's really horrible. And this is also really horrible, but time, yeah. time heals. Yeah. So, you know. And I think it's interesting to put it in, like, historical context kind of thing as well. Which we both like doing. Yes. <laughs> Probably more than we should. <laughs> kind of history geeks at times. Yes. Most of the time. All of the time. Um, but so with that in mind, uh, today we are taking you to Rillington Place, which is one of the most famous addresses in 1950s London. Uh, and we're going to talk about the murders that haunted the area for years. On March 24th, 1953, Beresford Brown was attempting to drill into the kitchen wall at 10 Rillington Place, Notting Hill. So he could put up a set of brackets to hold a wireless set. I want to name my kid Beresford. It's a cool name. I've never heard it before. <laughs> Have you not? It's, it's an old... I don't know if it's an old English name, but I know it's definitely an old comment, like common in old. Uh-huh. Olden times. Back in day. I like it. So... Uh, a wireless set, for those of you that don't know, is the old name for like a radio. Well, so I wondered about this because when I was reading through the script, I was like, wireless set, is it like a radio or is it like a, because I, I googled wireless set radio. I bet that brought up like some interesting things, given that we live in the age of the wireless again. Yes. Well, I added radio onto it and it came up with like, like a, a CB, like a communication radio like you can talk into it oh. so i didn't know like is it just because in my mind it's like oh yeah on the wireless you know and that's yeah well i always thought wireless was like a portable radio. radio yeah that's what i thought too but then i was like oh i don't know what is it which is it either way i guess he needed to hang it on the wall yeah so something involving a radio yeah some sort of radio waves uh, intercepted wirelessly to his home, that kind of thing. But whilst trying to drill through this wall, the drill went straight through the wallpaper and into nothing. Cool. There was no wall. And after stripping back the wallpaper, Beresford discovered that the paper was disguising a kitchen alcove. And now he lived on the top floor of 10 Rillington Place, but the landlord had allowed him use of the kitchen on the ground floor which is where he was attempting to drill through the wall. And this was usually let as part of the ground floor flat, but the tenant of the ground floor had vanished four days earlier, illegally subletting his flat without informing the landlord, and left behind a foul smell. Gross. Don't just hate tenants that do that. Yeah. So whilst Beresford ripped away the wallpaper, he found the source of the building's horrendous smell. The decomposing bodies of three young women. Obviously, the police were informed, 
and during a search for the property, they discovered three more bodies, one under the floorboards and two in the back garden. So the search was now on for the original tenant of the ground floor flat at 10 Rillington Place. It was Reg Christie. Yes. But this was not the first time that 10 Rillington Place had been the scene of uh, some horrific murders. Uh, And in fact, it wasn't even the first time that uh, Reg Christie's name had been brought up in relation to murder or violent crime. Uh, So let's go back a few years to when this address first became known as a house of death and murder. Uh, In the spring of 1948, 23-year-old Timothy Evans moved into one of the upper floor flats at 10 Rillington Place with his pregnant wife, Beryl, who was 18 at the time. In October 1948, their daughter, Geraldine, was born. Uh, Timothy Evans is described as being of low intelligence, easily led, uh, having missed long periods of schooling due to a childhood injury. Uh, the couple lived a fairly hand-to-mouth existence, so when Beryl uh, fell pregnant again less than a year later, the couple feared that they would not be financially able to support two small children. So they fought a lot about their situation, so much so that their neighbors became aware of the fighting, and eventually Beryl decided to terminate her pregnancy. Now, we're not entirely ha- sure how, But at some point, their neighbor, Reg Christie, who at the time worked at the National Post Office Savings Bank, offered to perform an abortion for Beryl. Because when I think abortions, I think post office. Next door neighbor. (laughs) Yeah. What the fuck? I I have read about this case so much and I do not understand how... You come to just insert yourself into that situation. Uh, no, I don't get it. Because yeah. this was 1949. This is 19 years before abortion would become legal in any form in the UK. So a woman's options for you know taking control of her own body were pretty limited. And backstreet abortions are dodgy under-the-counter medication were pretty much the only option for terminating a pregnancy. So, well, we are quite perplexed about how Reg Christie would go about inserting himself and his, you know, so-called abortion skills (laughs) into conversation with the Evanses. It's not surprising that Beryl took the opportunity when it was presented to her. But things didn't go exactly according to plan. And on November 8th, 1949, Timothy Evans came home and Christie told him that Beryl had died during the procedure. Christie reminded Evans that everyone was aware of his and Beryl's fights. Evans was a heavy drinker and there was quite frequent fights between him and Beryl even before uh, this second pregnancy. He... Uh, He used to fight with her about her inability to manage the family's finances or what was left of them when he was done drinking most of them away. So it wasn't exactly a happy marriage to start with. And Christy managed to convince Evans that the police would point the finger at him if he informed them that his wife had died. 
So instead of calling the police and telling them that his wife had died during an illegal procedure, which had been carried out by their neighbor, uh, Timothy Evans, uh, encouraged by Christie, fled London and returned to his hometown of how fucking dare you? <sighs> Would you like me to translate? No, I'm going to try it and then you can correct me. Um, he returned to his hometown of Merthyr Tideful. Tidfil. Tidfil. Merthyr Tidfil. Merthyr Tidfil. It's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, which is in Wales. Uh, if you, I mean, it might not be clear by just the spoken pronunciation, but there are Ys in there where vowels yeah, when, would normally be. Yeah, when you see be. it written down, you, you know, know it's Welsh. <laughs> yeah. As my father always used to say, the vowels are A-E-I-O-U and sometimes Y if you're Welsh. <laughs> so... Uh, before he left, Christy assured Evans that he and his wife, Ethel, would care for his uh, baby daughter, Geraldine, and that he would take care of Beryl's body. But uh, Evans couldn't stay away for long, and he made frequent trips back to London to check on his baby daughter. Uh, and each time, Christy assured him that Geraldine was safe and well, but uh, he would never let him see her, which is normal i suppose mm. um now according to murderpedia on november 30th evans went to the police and told them that his wife had died after he gave her a concoction which had been mixed by an unknown man to induce uh, a miscarriage he went on to tell them that he had disposed of Beryl's body in the sewer drain outside of 10 Rillington Place, and he said he had then made arrangements for baby Geraldine to be looked after before returning to Wales. Police searched the drains and sewers along Rillington Place, but they couldn't find any trace of Beryl's body. Evans then changed his story, telling them that Christie had killed Beryl whilst performing an abortion, and that he had only found out when he returned home from work and discovered her dead body in their home. He also told them that Christie had disposed of Beryl's body. So on December 2nd, 1949, police carried out a search of number 10 Rillington Place and its garden. And it was then that they found the bodies of Beryl, Geraldine, and the remains of a, of a 16-week-old fetus. Both Beryl and Geraldine had been strangled, and according to a police statement, Evans confessed to murdering them both. First, Beryl, after an argument, and then Geraldine a couple of days later, before he fled to Wales. Evans recanted his confession and later claimed that his supposed confession had been written by the interviewing officers. Nonetheless, he was arrested and in January 1950, his trial for the murder of his daughter Geraldine began. At Evans's trial, Christie was a key witness for the prosecution, uh, as was his wife Ethel, he told the court of the fights he overheard between Timothy and Beryl, as well as uh, Evans's doubts about his wife's plan to have an abortion. Evans's defense team was wholly ineffective and failed to follow up on the inconsistencies in the case, uh, as well as the lack of evidence which pointed to Evans, other than Christie's witness testimony about the couple's fights. Uh, although they did highlight Christie's extensive criminal past in an attempt to discredit his testimony, which we will get to in a moment. Uh, but 
We're not there yet. Um, so in the end, the jury took just 40 minutes to find Evans guilty of baby Geraldine's murder, and he was sentenced to death. Uh, although he had been charged with Beryl's murder, he was never tried in court for it. Uh, because under British law at the time, there was no need for him to be tried for both crimes. Uh, Evans appealed his conviction in February, reiterating his claims that it was Christie who had killed Beryl and Geraldine. But his appeal failed, and on March 9, 1950, he was hanged at Pentonville Prison in London. Timothy Evans's case, conviction, and ultimately his death would have massive consequences for the British legal system throughout the 1950s and 60s. But that's getting a little bit ahead, so we'll we'll hang on to that for a minute. Yeah. So during Timothy Evans' trial, it came out that Reg Christie had quite the criminal record, and that violence had been a part of Rillington Place long before Beryl and Geraldine Evans's brutal murders. So who was this man, this post office clerk, whose words were able to send his neighbour to the gallows? Well, Reg Christie was born John Reginald Halliday Christie in April 1899, just outside of Halifax in West Yorkshire. He was the sixth of seven children. According to the interwebs, he had troubled and cold relationships with his father, and his mothers and sisters alternated between coddling him and bullying him. What a good combo. Yeah. During his childhood, he was described as, quote, a queer lad who kept himself to himself. And that's queer as in strange, not like LGBTQ queer. Um, that's still used a lot up north. Like, I grew up here, like, I think I was in my 20s before I heard queer used in terms of describing someone's uh, sexuality. Yeah. Yeah. Just someone who's a bit strange, a bit weird. They say kept to themselves. When he was almost 12, Christie's grandfather, who he also had a troubled relationship with. A theme. Uh, I'm detecting died. a theme. Yeah. So his grandfather died, and Christie allegedly said that the sight of his grandfather lying dead on a trestle table gave him a feeling of power and well being as a man. He once feared was now only a corpse. Ew. From then on, he began to associate sex with death, violence, and dominance. This is very similar to Dennis Nielsen. I was thinking that when I was reading this. Even though Dennis Nielsen had like a really good... Re was His only really good relationship as when he was a child was with his grandfather. Yes. But that image of like his grandfather dead at the wake always led to that really confusing association of death and sex and violence. Yes, yeah, definitely a, a similarity there. When he started secondary school, Christy excelled in math and algebra. He had an IQ of 128. Uh, he was a member of the local Boy Scouts, and he sang in local choirs, uh, but he was always somewhat unpopular uh, had very few friends and fewer relationships. Uh, just we're about to check off some real serial killer 
bingo card here. Yeah. Um, so as a teenager, he discovered that he was impotent. Yay. Um, and his first few attempts at any kind of sexual re- relationships were disastrous. And owing to local gossip, he became known as, quote, Reggie No Dick and Can't Do It Christy. I don't know why it just amuses me. I really like Can't Do It Christy. That's a good one. <laughs> I mean, that's not even specific no. to impotence. That is the insult you can use over and over again. It's the gift that keeps giving. <laughs> um, <laughs> as I'm sure they treated it as such. Uh, so Who was doing the giving? Oh, yes. Not Christy. He can't do it. Let's move on before we disgrace ourselves. Too late. We've gotten to episode 48. We're already there. <laughs> um, so, along with the impotence, he also developed hypochondria at some point and often feigned or exaggerated illness to gain attention. Uh, he suffered impotence for the rest of his life and reportedly could only perform sexually with sex workers. Uh, At the age of 17, he enlisted in the British Army and served in the First World War. But in June 1918, he was injured in a uh, mustard gas attack, which left him unable to speak loudly for the rest of his life. Christie also claimed that the attack left him blind and mute for three and a half years, but there was never any record of this, um, and it's suspected that the blindness mutism and his inability to speak loudly were all a part of Christie's hypochondria. Uh, He was formally discharged from the army in 1919. In 1920, Christie married 22-year-old Ethel Simpson, who was also from Halifax, but it was an unconventional marriage uh, with Christie regularly engaging the services of sex workers, and there was much local gossip that Ethel only stayed with him out of fear. In 1921, in Halifax, Christie began working as a postman, but just a month later, he was convicted for stealing postal orders and served three months in prison. Do you need to explain a postal order? Because they're not common anymore, are they? It's like money orders, right? Yeah, it's it's, it's kind of similar to a check. Yeah. But basically, you can quite easily steal them. They're not as secure as a check. Two years later, he was arrested for violent conduct and obtaining money under false pretenses, for which he received 12 months probation. Ethel and Christie stayed together for four years, but separated when Christie moved to London, and Ethel remained in Halifax. After moving to London in 1924, he was arrested for theft and served nine months in Wandsworth Prison. After this, he kept his head down for a few years or appeared to at least, we don't know for sure. In 1929, he committed his first known violent act against a woman. He had been working as a lorry driver and living with a woman named Maud in Battersea, which is uh, just south of the River Thames in London. He hit Maud over the head with a cricket bat in what the magistrate described as a murderous attack. Luckily, Maud survived, but for this murderous attack, Christie was sentenced to just six months hard labour at Wandsworth Prison. Cool. Six months. Six months for attempted murder. That doesn't seem right. 
1933, he was convicted of car theft after stealing a car from a priest who he had befriended and served three months in Wandsworth Prison. Okay, like, two things here. Surely stealing a car from a priest is, like, extra bad. That's a bad juju. Yeah. Uh, Second thing. Does he get, like, a discount at Wandsworth Prison because he's just in and out so often? Oh, well, this is your third stay. Yes, you get a room with a view this time. Yeah, like, does he have a punch card? Like, one free, you know, prison gruel with every five stays? Like, oh my god. They must have been... Well, you never know. They must have been sick of it. Maybe he got, like, maybe instead of hard labor, he got mild labor. Medium labor. Soft-boiled labor. (laughs) So, upon his release in 1934 from Wandsworth Prison, where he lived, basically, uh, Christy reconciled with Ethel when she moved to London, and the couple moved back in together. Their marriage was just as dysfunctional as it always had been. And Christy continued to cheat on Ethel with sex workers to satisfy his increasingly violent sexual urges. Uh, But he did seem to keep his nose clean for a while, and throughout the late 1930s worked for the Commodore Cinema in nearby Hammersmith. In 1937, the couple moved into the top floor flat at 10 Rillington Place in Notting Hill, and the following year, they moved into a larger flat on the ground floor of the building. Uh, Notting Hill may now be sort of known as a fairly well-off, affluent area of London, known for its carnival and markets and Hugh Grant films. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I just erased that from my memory. I like that movie. But for much of the 20th century, it was a rundown area filled with mostly slums and cheap tenement buildings in poor states of repair. Uh, 10 Rillington Place was a three-story end terrace property, which, like most tenement buildings in the 1930s, only had one shared outdoor toilet in the communal backyard, and the flats on the upper floors were comprised of a private bedroom and living room and a shared kitchen space between all the flats on each floor. The ground floor flat, which Christy and Ethel moved into, did, however, have its own kitchen. None of the flats had any kind of bathroom, which is disgusting. Along with the cheap rents and poor conditions, Willington Place, uh, which was flattened in the 1970s and no longer exists, was close to an above-ground section of the Metropolitan Line of the London Underground. I love that it's called the Underground, but bits of it in Overground, overground. Yeah. Nowadays, it's all underground in this section, and it's actually the Circle and Hammersmith and the City Lines that run through this area of Notting Hill. So it's between Latimer Road and Ladbrook Grove underground stations. As anyone who has lived close to an above-ground rail line will know, pretty fucking loud. Yeah. And the line running behind the houses was described as being deafening for the residents of Rillington Place in the 1930s. When war broke out in 1939, Christie joined the War Reserve Police, which was a voluntary branch within the British police. 
due to his quite comprehensive criminal record, Christie should not have been admitted into the police, but possibly because they had other things on their mind at the beginning of the Second World War, and possibly because they needed all the help they could get, the force didn't bother running any of the usual background checks on Christie, and he was admitted straight into the force, where he served until 1943. During his time in the war police, Christie began an affair with a woman who worked at Harrow Road Station, which is the same station he worked at. The woman's husband was a soldier who was fighting on the front in Europe. Now there's two versions of how this affair ended. In one, the soldier husband returned one night in mid-1943 to find his wife in bed with Christie, who, it seems, had no problems with impotence with anyone who wasn't his wife. <laughs> I mean, this is just a very strange situation. Yeah. And the uh, soldier husband set about him there and then. In the other version, the husband found out about the affair and went round to Rillington Place and assaulted Christie in his own home. Either way, Christie got battered. Fair enough. Mm. All things considered. Now, it was shortly after the end of this affair that Christie committed his first known murder. Uh, in August 1943, he murdered 21-year-old Austrian munitions worker Ruth Fürst. Uh, Ruth occasionally supplemented her income with sex work, and given Notting Hill's reputation as a rundown, poverty-stricken area, sex work was not uncommon. And this is how her path crossed with Christie's. After uh, soliciting her services in a bar in Notting Hill, Christie invited Ruth back to his home on Rillington Place, and apparently Ethel was away visiting relatives at the time. Otherwise, it would have been awkward. Yeah. Just, just a bit. Uh, after having what he described as consensual sex with Ruth, now, it's important to remember that his this confession came years later, and there were no eye or ear witnesses to contest his version of events. So he says it was consensual. We don't know. Um, so after they copulated in a consensual or possibly non-consensual way, he just impulsively decided to strangle her with a rope as she lay on the bed. You know, as the urge strikes you every now and then. Uh, I mean, there's not really anything you can say to that. I mean, normal people don't, you know, kind of lay there like, oh, yeah, what just had sex, what should I do? Oh, yeah, strangle. Yeah, that's, that's not usually, you know, you don't see that one in the movies as often. A cigarette, maybe. No. A drink, maybe. Not a strangle. You know, and have, a, have a little cuddle, have a shower. Yeah, nap. nap. No, no. Oh, yeah, we've just got some rope hanging around next to the that's bed. That's the other thing, too. There's a lot of questions here. Um, so he then hid her body under the floorboards at 10 Rillington Place, uh, but then changed his mind, and the next night he buried her in the backyard. Uh, now, this is referred to as Christie's first known murder because his killing streak lasted 10 years and... Uh, there's only his word about whether or not there were victims before Ruth. However, modern uh, commentators suspect that he may have committed earlier murders, but uh, had been able to cover them up 
or point the finger at someone else during his time in the police force. The other reason he may have been able to get away with murder is that there was a war on. Ruth was a young girl far from home, and nobody was really looking for her in London. And when her loved ones back in Austria stopped hearing from her, they assumed that she had died in one of the many bombing, many bombings that took place in London during 1943. So sadly, nobody looked for her. Really, nobody was looking for murderers in places like London during the Second World War. Disappearances were pretty much always chalked up as just being a victim of the war. Uh, a few months after murdering Ruth in late 1943, Christie resigned from the police force, and in 1944 he took up a job at a radio factory in Acton in West London, and this was where he met his second victim, Muriel Eady. In October 1944, Muriel was suffering from bronchitis. Uh, Christie, being the kind co-worker that he was, offered to help her with a homemade treatment that he had concocted. He invited Muriel back to his home and gave her this treatment which is kind of like a balm type of thing, you know, like a, a Vicks mm. vapor rub type, that kind of thing that had been like heated up and you like inhale mm -hmm. it. Um, so he gave her this little mask thing to put over her face and she would inhale it via a pipe, which was connected to a jar of this mixture. But what Muriel didn't know was that a second pipe had been connected to this jar and she was also inhaling domestic gas fumes. Great. So in the 1940s, domestic gas was derived from coal gas, also known as town gas, which has a very high carbon monoxide content. And so, owing to that, Muriel quickly fell unconscious. There are a few versions of what happened next, uh, or sort of different orders of events. So after falling unconscious, Muriel was strangled by Christie and raped, but accounts differ on whether he sexually assaulted her before or after her death, or whether he strangled her while raping her. Either way, it's not good. Now, um, after killing her, he buried her body in the backyard of 10 Rillington Place next to Ruth First. After murdering Muriel, Christie once again seemed to keep his nose clean for a few years. After the war, he got a job at the post office savings bank and seemed to live quite a normal life. Uh, that was until 1948 when Timothy and Beryl Evans moved into one of the upper floor flats at 10 Rillington Place. Christie did appear to be a normal, average neighbor to the Evanses, and nobody suspected that he had, you know buried the bodies of two young women in the backyard. Um, but when he overheard his young neighbors arguing about Beryl's pregnancy and whether or not they could afford to raise two children, he took the opportunity to insert himself into their lives. Because if you haven't realized, Timothy Evans was indeed telling the truth when he accused Christie of murdering his wife and daughter. Christie offered to perform an abortion for Beryl, but instead he gassed her with the domestic gas in the same way that he gassed Muriel. And then he assaulted her and strangled her to death before committing sexual acts upon her dead body. 
After convincing Timothy Evans to flee and return to his hometown in Wales, promising to care for baby Geraldine, Christy also strangled her and hid the two bodies in the communal wash house at 10 Rillington Place. When Timothy Evans was found guilty of Geraldine's murder, Christy, who was basically the only evidence against him, broke down in tears in the middle of the courtroom. Now, it has been speculated that it could have been out of guilt, not only for actually murdering Beryl and Geraldine, but also for an innocent man being sentenced to death. Or, much more likely, out of relief that he'd got away with murder. That seems much more likely. Yeah, that's what I think yeah. too. Um, now, in hindsight, a number of questions were raised as to how good a job police actually did when they were searching for Beryl and Geraldine's bodies, because their garden was small, uh, just around four by four meters. Um, but they managed to miss the two bodies that were already buried in the garden, and one of them wasn't even buried that well. Um, a femur bone had been dug up by a dog, which belonged to one of the tenants, and instead of reburying it, Christy just used it to prop up a fence post, which had begun to lean slightly. Right, that's... <sighs> Some kind of DIY right there. I mean, how hard is it to, to go and find a piece of wood from somewhere to prop up a fence post that's leaning? Yeah. Like, don't... It's just very brazen, isn't it? Yeah. Um, now, Christie's dog also dug up Muriel's skull, and he disposed of it in a nearby building, which had been bombed out during the war, uh, but hadn't yet been demolished. Now... Had the garden been properly examined and excavated, as well as uh, if Christie's flat had been searched, because, you know, he was being accused of murder, police would have been able to connect him to the four murders and four more lives could have been saved. Following Timothy Evans's trial, Christie lost his job because he had not disclosed his previous convictions. Uh, he became depressed and quickly burned through his and Ethel's savings. In August that year, he found a job as a clerk at the British Road Services Shepherd's Bush Depot, and things went, you know, quiet-ish, mainly quiet again, for a few years uh, where Christy was concerned. You see, around this time, the late 1940s and early 1950s, is when the so-called Windrush generation began to arrive in Britain. So we talked about this in quite a bit more depth in our episode on the racist murder of Stephen Lawrence, mm -hmm. which was one we, I think we did it in July last year, so. Yeah. Episode 20-something, maybe? I think it's maybe? 25 or 6. Yeah. So in short, Britain was pretty much in ruins following the Second World War, uh, especially London, because of all the bombing during the Blitz, and workers were invited from all over what was left of the British Empire, because that too was also massively in decline. And most of these workers came from the West Indies or from India. And they were invited to Britain to help rebuild the country after the war. But Britain was, and let's not mince our words about this, still is, as the past few years have shown, an incredibly racist place. Yeah. 
So when all these black people started arriving, taking the shitty jobs that we Brits think we're too good to do, people weren't happy, and the Christies were no exception. And as Notting Hill was a very rundown area filled with landlords who didn't really care about giving the tenants a comfortable or even safe place to live, it was an incredibly cheap place to live. So many of these new workers, who were British Empire citizens invited to Britain to work, moved into the area. And this is obviously what's given the area its now like famous multicultural cosmopolitan reputation. At the time, it wasn't popular. Yeah. So, following the murders of Beryl and Geraldine Evans, there was a bit of a revolving door of tenants at 10 Rillington Place, most of whom were part of this Windrush generation. And the Christies were not quiet in their racism. Ethel Christie reported other tenants for assault and theft. Some cases went to court, others were dismissed. They even engaged the services of the Poor Man's Lawyer Centre to ensure they had exclusive access to the communal outdoor space. Now, some sources say that this was so that they could ensure space between them and their new neighbours, who they vehemently hated. Others say it was so there was no chance of anyone discovering the bodies of Ruth and Muriel, who were still buried there. Either way, it's not good. No. Um, the quest- question I have about that is, though, so at this, I don't know if at this point they would have had like any kind of indoor plumbing or toilet facility. That's what I was going to ask. Because supposedly they just had a shared outhouse, which was in the backyard, so I don't really understand how that works. Yeah, like was he suing to have sole access to the crapper? Because that seems... Very rude. Yeah. Um, uh, in 1952, Christie went back to his murderous ways, but this time he wasn't targeting foreign workers or loose acquaintances who wouldn't be traced back to him. Um, at the beginning of December, Christie quit his job at the British Road Services Depot, uh, and he told his boss that he had found a better job in Sheffield and that he and Ethel would soon be returning to Yorkshire. Uh, on the morning of December 14th, 1952, Christie strangled his wife, Ethel, in bed, uh, and then he told a lot of lies to keep anyone from realizing that Ethel was dead. Uh, with neighbors and acquaintances in London, he stuck to the story that the couple were returning to Yorkshire. He said that Ethel had left London first to set up their new home and that he would be following uh, her in the new year. Now, for family and loved ones back in Halifax, he wrote letters telling them that Ethel was suffering with rheumatism, so she wasn't able to write her own letters anymore. Uh, He continued corresponding with Ethel's friends and family for the next few months, maintaining the pretense that Ethel's pain was too severe and debilitating for her to write her own letters. But by February 1953, he stopped responding to letters. Now, in reality, Christie had hidden Ethel's body beneath the floorboards of the kitchen at 10 Rillington Place. Um, And according to Crime and Investigation, Christie's neighbors began to complain of bad smells coming from the ground floor flat, 
So he began treating the entire flat with very strong disinfectants to cover the smell of his wife's decomposing body below the floorboards. In the days following her murder, he sold Ethel's wedding ring and her watch to a local pawn uh, broker. And in early January, he sold almost all of their possessions, leaving himself with just three chairs and a mattress. Uh, Between January 19th and March 6th, 1953, Christie committed three more murders. Sadly, we don't know much about these women or even exactly when they died, because all of the sources kind of group these three women together, almost like a footnote in Reg Christie's crimes. But we'll do our best. So around January 19th, Christie invited 25-year-old Rita Nelson to his flat. Rita was from Belfast, and she was visiting her sister, who lived in the nearby neighbourhood of Ledbrook Grove. Uh, Rita was also six months pregnant. Now, we don't know the exact circumstances in which she met Christie, or how they struck a conversation, but he invited her back to his flat, um, where he exposed her to carbon monoxide. He did this with all three women. They began to feel drowsy, he repeatedly raped them, and then strangled them. Now, Christie claimed in his confession that he had modified his gassing technique, these three final victims, claiming to have leaked gas into the kitchen, but this would also have exposed him to the carbon monoxide and most likely incapacitated him as well. Um, So this explanation is disputed, but it is agreed upon that he exposed them to carbon monoxide in some way so they would pass out. Then he could sexually assault them and strangle them. He hid uh, Rita's body in the alcove in the kitchen at 10 Rillington Place. Sometime in February 1953, Christie met 26-year-old sex worker uh, Kathleen Maloney from Southampton, who is living in the Ladbroke Grove area of Notting Hill. Uh, As with Rita, once she was back at 10 Rillington Place, Christie gassed her before raping and strangling her. He then hid her body in the kitchen alcove along with Rita. Uh, now, of course, because this was the 50s, nobody really cared about a missing or murdered sex worker, so Christie had now gotten away with seven murders. Uh, in February, Christie met 26-year-old Hectorina McLennan and her boyfriend Alex Baker in London. They quickly seemed to strike up something of a friendship, and Christie even offered them a place to stay while they looked for a flat of their own. Uh, now, we're not sure, though, um, whether or not they took him up on the offer. Uh, one day in early March, Christie met up with Hectorina alone, and he invited her back to Rillington Place, where he raped and strangled her. He hid her body in the alcove alongside uh, Rita and Kathleen. Hectorina's boyfriend Alex came to Rillington Place a few days later, asking if, asking Christy if he'd seen her. Christy claimed he hadn't, and for the next couple of weeks, he met up with Alex multiple times, asking him if he'd found her yet. Eventually, Alex assumed that uh, Hectorina had just decided to leave without telling him and returned to her native Scotland. Is that like the 50s equivalent of being ghosted? I guess. Just like... To me, sounds wild that 
Or someone does. would just disappear. That your partner would disappear and you'd be like, eh, they've just gone home. Just moved that's back the, to Scotland. That's the thing. Like, th- just the assumption of like, well, she must have left the country. Oops. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. Most sources estimate Hectorina's death has taken place on March 6th. Christy stayed in the flat at 10 Rillington Place with three bodies in the alcove and one under the floorboards for the next two weeks. But then he decided to leave. Christy just couldn't stand living in the same building or even street or neighbourhood as black people for any longer. Great. So on March 20th, he sublet his flat, illegally, to a young family, charging them three months' rent up front, and then he fled. But the landlord came by that same evening and found out. And threw out this family the next day. I think he was like, you can stay here the night, but you're gone in the morning. Sort of thing. <sighs> in the two weeks since he'd killed Hectorina, Christy had papered over the alcove in the kitchen, so it appeared to be a solid wall. Although there was no disguising the smell of decomposing bodies. Four days after Christy disappeared, top floor resident Beresford Brown tried to drill into what he believed was a wall in the kitchen, but was actually where the alcove had been papered over to hide the bodies, and discovered the source of the foul smell at 10 Millington Place. And we're back to where we started. Now, imagine being so racist that you'd leave a, leave a flat with four dead bodies in it and risk getting caught for murder rather than live next door to black people. Just just imagine the racism going on there. I just it's a lot and it seems like yeah, your priorities there are a little backwards. Yeah. Christy was hiding out at a hostel in King's Cross, which at the time was also a much more much more rundown and seedy area than it is today. Uh, but when news broke of the discovery of the bodies in the alcove at 10 Rillington Place, he fled and was found a week later near Putney Bridge. Christie denied being Reg Christie when the officer stopped him near Putney Bridge, but uh, he was searched. Uh, all he had in his possession was an identity card, a ration book, his union card, a few coins, and an old newspaper clipping about Timothy Evans. Uh, the ID card and ration book confirmed he was Reg Christie and he was arrested on the spot. During police questioning, Christie confessed to the murders of Rita, Kathleen, and Hectorina, as well as his wife, Ethel. But the police continued to search 10 Rillington Place and they eventually discovered the skeletal remains of Ruth and Muriel. And when confronted with this discovery, Christie admitted responsibility for their murders too. During later questioning, he confessed to Beryl's murder as well, but always denied murdering baby Geraldine. Um, now, it should have been a pretty open and shut case, considering, you know, the confessing to multitudes of murder. Yeah, you would think, wouldn't you? Yeah. But there was a problem. Isn't there always? Isn't there just... Uh, Christy decided to plead insanity. It was argued that the only reason he had confessed to murdering Beryl was so that he would appear even more insane. 
uh, confessing when everyone knew that obviously it was Timothy Evans who had killed her. Uh, a doctor assessed him while he was in custody and determined that although Christie displayed some hysterical personality traits, he was sane and fit for trial. Uh, the trial began at London's Old Bailey on June 22, 1953. He pled insanity and claimed to have no memory of the events in question, but the jury didn't buy it, thank God. And after just 85 minutes of deliberation, they found him guilty in the exact same court uh, which had found Timothy Evans guilty three years earlier. Uh, now, Christie was only tried for the murder of his wife, Ethel, and not for the other seven murders he committed. Christie didn't appeal his sentence, and on July 15th he was executed at Pentonville Prison. The hangman was one Albert Pierpoint, the same executioner who hanged Timothy Evans three years earlier. Now, according to our old friend Wikipedia, uh, when Christie was about to be executed, he began complaining that his nose itched. Poor soul. <laughs> and Pierpoint re uh, remarked that he shouldn't worry about it, as it wouldn't bother him for long. Oh, good old gallows humour. <laughs> Literally. Literally. <laughs> Christie did not express any remorse for having been the reason that an innocent man was hanged. Uh, the case doesn't end there, though. An inquiry was launched to determine whether or not Christie was responsible for Beryl and Geraldine's deaths. An inquiry found that Evans was guilty of both murders, and Christie had only confessed to try and bolster his claims that he was insane. It's actually interesting. Modern experts reckon that he wasn't insane that he had some sort of like personality um, yeah. disorder mm -hmm. that led him to behaving the way he did. There was a 12-year campaign to clear Evans's name and eventually in 1965 he received a posthumous royal pardon. When convicts were hanged, part of the punishment was for them to be buried in an unmarked grave within the prison's walls. So following Evans's pardon, his body was exhumed and he was reburied in a Roman Catholic cemetery in Leiston in London. In 2003, Evans's sister and half-sister were awarded compensation for his wrongful execution. And Evans's case was referred to the Court of Appeals with the hopes that it would be quashed and he declared innocent. However, because of the time and money involved in such a process, this didn't happen but the Home Office have accepted that given the evidence, which is Christie was the only one with access to the outside wash house, the bodies of Beryl and Geraldine were wrapped in blankets in the same way as uh, Christie's other known victims and Christie's confession. They believe that Timothy Evans was innocent. Uh, the execution of Timothy Evans did have another lasting legacy, um, and that is that it was one of three highly publicized cases which helped lead to the abolition of the death penalty in the United Kingdom. The other two cases were Ruth Ellis, who was hanged after being convicted of her boyfriend's murder in 1955. She was the last woman to be hanged in the UK. And, and the other was the case of Derek Bentley. Bentley was executed on January 1953, just a few months before Evans. 
He was just 19. Bentley and his friend Christopher Craig, who was 16, had attempted to burgle a warehouse. During this burglary, Christopher Craig stabbed and murdered a police officer. Because Craig was 16, he could not be sentenced to death, but Bentley was under the principle of joint enterprise, uh, which meant that both parties uh, are guilty of the crime, even though Bentley was not the one who stabbed the police officer. So Bentley was executed for a murder that he didn't commit. Uh, so the death penalty was eventually abolished in the UK with the murder, parentheses, abolition of death penalty, close parentheses, Act 1965, uh, which suspended the death penalty for five years. In 1969, the act was made permanent and the death penalty was abolished for good in England, Scotland, and Wales. Uh, in Northern Ireland, the death penalty was still used in murder convictions until 1973. And that is the story and legacy of uh, Reg Christie and 10 Rillington Place. Wow. Yeah. I mean, part of it is like, it's, it's crazy that he got away from it for so long, but when you look at the context of it, like, during the war, nobody cared. Nobody yeah. looked for murderers because people just... I mean, we talked about this in one of our early Patreon episodes about uh, Bella in the Witch Elm. Mm -hmm. Bodies turned up all over during the war and people... They weren't investigated. It was just assumed that they died somehow because of the war, whether it was in a bombing or, you know, they were murdered by enemy or something like that. Yeah. And nobody nobody was looking yeah. for a serial killer. Because yeah. there is, there's uh, another serial killer, also from Yorkshire, <laughs> who was uh, active at this time. That was John George Haig, who yeah. was also known as the Acid Bath Killer. Mm -hmm. And he was able to keep operating for quite a while, or sort of go under the radar a bit, because people weren't, or law enforcement weren't as focused on finding murderers during the war. Because they had other things to worry about. Yeah. He's basically active from the end of the first world war in one way or another criminally yeah. so through the entire interwar period to through yeah. the second world war and then beyond like he it, it you've got the vestiges of the first world war to cover up your crimes you've got the second world war and the sort of all the unrest leading up to that in the 30s yeah so and then you've like, got the the post-war post-war yeah, post years when the country was kind of in Disarray. ruins yeah 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 exactly like so the the very nature of his sort of timing for lack of a, a better term re i think really helped him sort yeah. of continue it's, to get away with this it's almost like the sort of perfect storm yeah of who of just everything like his upbringing his mm -hmm. you know if to steal a phrase from another well you know a very well-known podcast you get your serial killer bingo card out yeah you know what i'm talking about you know you could tick off all these things he um had very dysfunctional relationships with the women in his family he had very dysfunctional relationships with his father and his grandfather mm -hmm. he had sexual dysfunction in his teens he undoubtedly was exposed to trauma during the war. Yeah. He had some kind of personality um, disorder. 
according to modern experts. Yeah. You know, the hypochondria was part of that. And then you've got his early, like his early criminal acts not being dealt with very, like, there's no kind of serious jail time at all, even for the attempted murder. You just, yeah. like, you try and cave someone's skull in with a cricket bat and you get six months hard labor. That's the thing. Like, he tried to smack someone over the head with a wooden bat and he got smacked on the wrist for it. Yeah. So, and, and then like you've got into into the first uh, the second world war where nobody is looking for foreign workers nobody well nobody's looking for anyone it's just assumed that they died in the blitz yeah mostly. like and there's there's so much other stuff that's happening like there's a lot of he's part of the police force at this point yeah which is why it's suspected he may have have been able to commit other murders and cover them up yeah I think and that's then, definitely likely. And then you get Timothy Evans, who is described as, you know, being of low intellect, easily led, things like that. He's able to murder Beryl and Geraldine and pin the the blame on Timothy Evans because he comes across as this this very well spoken, soft, you know, softly spoken gentleman. You know, oh. you know, who, no, supposedly cannot even raise his own voice, you know, can't raise his voice or shout. Yes, of course. And, and, and how many instances have we seen of a, you know, someone who's arrested for uh, a murder that occurs within their sort of sphere of existence with a low IQ who's influenced by arresting officers and arrest, arresting and interrogating officers yeah. who confesses to a crime and then it comes out oh hey they didn't do that but they were manipulated into confessing yeah it's not a rarity sadly no. and so we both watched the show murder maps yeah uh, which is on youtube we will link it in the episode description and on the website and one of the contributors to that, who is a former detective, I think in the Metropolitan Police, said that in reading Timothy Evans' statement, he said he knew it was written, he could tell it had been written by the uh, arresting or interrogating officers because it's written out exactly how a policeman would write a statement out. Yeah, They're given kind of a template of how to write a statement, obviously when someone's confessing, they don't follow a, tem a template because you're not asking questions, you're just letting them confess. Yeah, I thought that was really telling. Yeah, that was really interesting. Like, I'd never read that or heard that in any of the other sources. Yeah, I think it's an interesting case and definitely this guy could have been stopped at multiple points, whether it was, yeah. you know, serving more time for attempted murder or someone actually looking a bit deeper into the timothy evans case like yeah. it's a it's a real shame yeah and just thinking that so do you remember when we did the amelia dyer case it's one of mm -hmm. our patron episodes on baby farming yeah victorian England, yeah right she got something like six or nine months hard labor for attempting to murder a baby 
Yeah. So that was in like the 1870s, 1880s, I think. Mm-hmm. So they still hadn't learned. Yeah, decades so, later. So that's what... Like at least 40 years later, mm-hmm. when he's uh, convicted of the assault on Maud and uh, trying to kill her with a cricket bat, that's just the same penalty. Yeah. It's, it's still like six months hard labour as though that works. Yeah. And don't it's get me just... wrong, I'm all for rehabilitation. And yeah. if rehabilitation works and that results in shorter prison sentences, but it results in less violent people in society, I'm all for that. But six months hard labour wasn't working. No, quite clearly. That was not a winning solution. No. No. Yeah. I just, oh, and he's just so creepy. Just like the, like, using gas and it's just, oh, it's, ugh. Mm. Horrifying. So, <laughs> hope you enjoyed yourself. That is uh, Red Christie, Rillington Place. Uh, yeah. Thank you for listening. Yes. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, we would love it if you could rate and review us on, especially on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, because that really does help us reach more listeners. If you do have any cases you want us to cover, come find us on social media. Come suggest cases, tell us what kind of things you want to hear. Yeah. And um, if you're not already, wherever you're listening to this right now, subscribe. Because that's the thing you can do. And that also helps, uh, you know, get us in front of more people and improve the the podcast and, and all that jazz if you will um and now if you would like to go a step further and uh, you know boy would we be appreciative if you did but no pressure um you can join our patreon uh we have tiers starting at one pound slash dollar slash euro whatever a month um going up to 50 pounds per month you don't have to go for that that's just my mom don't worry about it (laughs) um (laughs) but you know starting at at one 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 dollar one pound one whatever uh you you get episodes a month early no no you don't you get them a day early (laughs) you get episodes a day early Oh my god, I'm tired. Um, yeah, so uh, you get a discount code for our merch shop. Don't worry, I'll talk about that in a second. Um, you, yeah, you just get you get fun stuff, and as you go up the tiers, you get more fun stuff. And we are introducing this month uh, a new benefit for our two pound tier. So that's like the second lowest option. Um, some extra special stuff in there so go check that out where uh it's patreon.com slash square mile of murder it will be linked in the show notes and if you can't find it there or can't click on it then go to our website square mile of murder.com it's all there you'll find it all there uh now merch i mentioned that merch we have it you can buy it you can wear it on your person and it's cool looking 
we've got a couple designs right now. Um, we've got a raccoon design uh, to, to honor Skidmore, Missouri, and our most popular episode to date, episode four. Um, we have a design that is our logo because it's fun. Everyone loves a cone, right? And uh, who who doesn't love a traffic cone? Who doesn't love a traffic cone? Um, and there is a special design uh, uh, commemorating, I suppose, our uh, episodes about the four infamous Glasgow Square Mile murders. Um, so go check those out. Uh, you can find the link in the show notes on our website. All that good stuff. Um, and yeah, if you join the Patreon, you get a 25% discount on the merch. So it's a whole thing. You should check it out. And um, yeah. That's it. We will be back on Friday for our £5 and up patrons. Mm -hmm. We'll have the first of this month's bonus episodes. Uh, this month we're talking about the Levison Inquiry. Following on from last month's Patreon episode on the murder of Joanna Yates and yeah. the press vilification of Christopher Jeffries. Yes. Yeah. And for everyone else, we will see you next week. Yeah. We will thanks see you then. For, thanks for listening. Yes. Thank you so much, everyone. Bye. Bye.